Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audio books. Right now, you can get a free audio book with a free 30-day trial by going to audibletrial.com dot com slash other people that's audible dot com slash o t h e r p e o p l e you have to spell it out in the traditional manner audible dot com slash other people there's over a hundred thousand different titles there's hundreds of thousands of titles there's possibly even millions of titles waiting for you you can listen to these audiobooks wherever you go you can put them on your device uh, it's very easy and it's a great way to make your downtime more useful and enriching. AudibleTrial.com slash other people. These are audiobooks. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right. Everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is somehow still happening. This is fundamentally disorganized. Uh, hi there. I'm Brad Listy. How are you? I'm in Los Angeles. I'm talking to you into this uh, microphone. My guest is Elizabeth McCracken. Uh, she's a terrific writer. And her latest book is a story collection called Thunderstruck. It is available from the Dial Press, and she and I will be in conversation uh, in just a moment. First, though, I do want to read an email from a listener. Her name is Beth, and she writes, Dear Brad, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of other people. Uh, even though you're an open-minded person and someone I deeply respect, I'm not sure what your response will be to this email, and this makes me nervous. I hope that I can convey my thoughts accurately, humbly, and respectfully. If I don't, if I offend you in any way, please accept my sincerest apology. Uh, episode 318 with Merritt Tears sparked a desire to write to you because of the negative references to Christianity. I was raised in a conservative evangelical family, tight morals, unwaveringly Republican, anti-abortion, anti-gay, anti-everything. Around the age of 16, I had a crisis of faith that spurned me to buy every book on religion, philosophy, atheism, metaphysics that I could get my hands on. And I spent the summer after junior year reading all of them. I didn't lose my faith. In fact, reading about other religions and arguments for atheism only made Christianity make more sense to me. I decided to remain a Christian, but this meant that I had to come to terms with the church as an institution. 
I started reading books by Donald Miller, Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, Shane Claiborne, and others like them. I soon learned that there was a whole community devoted to living out the commandment to love God and love people. Activism, social justice, spirituality, and authenticity were the intrinsic values of this movement. I don't understand why those who have left the church don't see or don't acknowledge the 50% of Christians in America, and the percentage is higher for those under the age of 35, who are doing their very best to not be like the, quote, fundamentals as seen on TV. We are accepting of those who are different from us. We are feeding people. We are building wells and villages. Uh, We are buying food for the homeless guy on the street. We are using our money to buy fair trade diamonds and coffee and clothes and trying our best to love the planet and the people in it. I guess I'm just trying to tell you that the church is changing, that conservatism is on the way out, and while the Church of Christ and Southern Baptists probably won't budge in their theological stances anytime soon, many other denominations are evolving, and many churches aren't even part of denominations anymore. I'm not trying to change your opinion of Christianity or to deny your experience. I'm attempting to educate you about a part of it that doesn't get publicity or attention And to consider that there are Christians who listen to your show and probably cringe when they hear you and the author confer about all the bad stuff and never mention the good stuff or the stuff that's changed. I love your show. I seriously do. I appreciate your views. I find your monologues entertaining and honestly can't think of an episode or an author I have not enjoyed. Even number 318, Merritt Tierce's book, is on my to-read list. Thank you for doing what you do. Signed, Beth. So, uh, thank you, Beth. I appreciate the letter. I appreciate the good thoughts. Uh, I don't have a, a super strong rebuttal. I think everybody's entitled to their own view. And, uh, when it comes to Christian authors on this program, uh, most of that is accidental. I don't vet people for their spiritual beliefs uh, before they come on the program. Uh, in case you haven't noticed, uh, I, uh, you know, I'm not that organized. I said that at the top of the show, <laughs> So, you know, and it doesn't even come up in every conversation. And when it does, it's just purely uh, an accident or an incident, you know, it's, it's incidental. I did have a conversation uh, on a recent episode with uh, Lisa Cross Smith, who seems to engage uh, in Christianity in a similar way. I didn't feel like we had a super contentious uh, conversation at all. I think we need people who are, you know, uh, we need more Christian hippies. We need more people who are trying to uh, emulate Jesus and to act like Jesus and who, you know, are not as uh, enamored with the uh, institutional church. I'm all for that. I don't have any problem with Jesus, the man. I have a problem with the, uh, with the institutions, which pervert his teachings and which, you know, make him into a Superman in my view in an effort to uh, lord over people and control them, take their money. I don't know, you know? So, I mean, do your thing, Beth. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) You know, as long as you're not, you know, as long as you're not hurting anybody in this world by whatever you do or whatever you believe, uh, then I'm okay with it. I mean, I, I do think, like, personally, I tend to lean more in the direction of uh, thinking that, you know, religion has done more bad in the world than good in the world. I realize this is a point of debate. Some people believe the opposite. But when you look to history, you stack up the bodies, you look at the current state of the world, you see what's happening. It's hard for me to see how uh, religion is doing more uh, good than harm. I think it's doing more harm than good. 
I feel like it divides people cross-culturally, and I feel like it gives people uh, a quote-unquote elevated uh, rationale for some pretty bad behaviors. Some religions more so than others. I don't want to get into false equivalencies here. Some of the religions in this world right now, at whatever point these religions happen to be in their their, uh, existence or evolution or whatever, are more fucked up than others. That's true. It's not apples to apples, but you know, I don't think about it that much. I mean, I guess I think about Catholicism, which is the religion of my youth more so than others, just because, you know, it's part of my identity and I'm trying to always reconcile with it somehow, I suppose, but I really don't think about it all that much. And I certainly don't sit around in a fever. Um, you know, I don't engage people who are not religious will understand this. I think. I haven't been to church in like 25 years. It's not part of my daily calculation. I just don't get it at the level of the like institutional uh, behavior and, and at the level of dogma. Like for me, any meaningful uh, engagement with uh, Catholicism or Christianity would have to begin with like the Pope and the bishops saying that Jesus was a man. Just admit it. Jesus was a man. He wasn't Superman. He wasn't the only son of God. That's bullshit. He was a man. He was a great spiritual thinker. He got laid. He sinned. He died. He suffered. Like a human being. He was a great teacher. Why can't that be enough? Why does he got to, you know, why does he have to be uh, like Santa Claus? That's my, you know, and I don't mean to denigrate, but you know what I'm saying? That's a frustration for me. My brain just doesn't see the evidence. I can't look at the evidence and say, oh yeah, right. He was the only son of God. And I think too, you know, so much of my frustration comes at the level of interpretation and the way these things are taught. And it's entirely possible that there are Christian teachers who agree with me and are teaching it in a way that would be uh, more amenable to my particular views. That's awesome. I hope it exists. I I won't be signing up anytime soon uh, because I don't feel like I need to. It's not something I'm interested in is what I'm trying to say, but You know, when it comes to something like the resurrection, Jesus was resurrected from the dead on the third day or whatever. Uh, You know, he didn't rise up out of the ground and float to the sky, which is sort of the the cartoonish version that was presented to me as a child. Uh, My particular understanding of resurrection is different than that. It has more to do uh, with the fact that there's no such thing as death and that, uh, you know, there's 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 a circle of life. Disney had it figured out. It's just like the Lion King said. I can't get on a soapbox and start talking about this stuff, but you know what I mean? Does anyone out there know what I mean? Uh, Beth, if you don't know what I mean, or if you just happen to disagree, that's fine with me. I hope it's fine. I think it's fine with you. We're all doing the best we can. So is there anything else that I could say? Oh, uh, you know what? One thing I would say is that when it comes to, uh, you know, the world, I think it's obvious to most of us that the world is in debt, you know, pretty desperate need of, uh, a massive shift in the way that human, you know, human beings on the whole exist, how we do life needs to change in order for our species to continue to uh, exist and flourish on this planet. Uh, is there any debate about that at this point? Is there any debate about the notion that we're in deep trouble? And, you know, one thing that occurs to me is that, and, and let me give you a parallel example. Okay. And it's, uh, it's along these same lines with, re- with regard to how much trouble we're in. 
So, you know, when it comes to climate change, the planet is heating up, the climate is changing, the ice sheets are calving, it's all, it's all fucked up. And the reason it's all fucked up is because of people and because of uh, human endeavor and the misuse of resources and greed and all the rest. Uh, there is at least an outside possibility if this thing is still containable in any way and if we can alleviate it in a meaningful and lasting way, there is at least the possibility that the principal drivers of this alleviation could be corporations, which have been right at the center of the problem. Why? Because corporations have resources. And also, uh, perhaps a little bit perversely, because there could be uh, the ability for these corporations to monetize the recovery. You can make money off of being green. That's coming. It's already sort of here. But you know what I'm saying? In much the same way, uh, I think it's possible that a big shift in uh, human uh, consciousness or a big shift in the way we behave could theoretically be driven by religion. And, uh, you know, it's, it's objectively true that under the banner of religion, uh, a lot of great evil has been done on this, uh, on this planet. A lot of the problems with humanity are rooted in people's, uh, you know, perverse religious beliefs and the behaviors that those beliefs justify for them. But maybe it'll be religion uh, that winds up being at the heart of uh, the shift. Maybe there'll be one particular you know, religion, uh, the teachings of which are really powerful and deep and true. Or maybe it's as simple as the fact that these religious institutions are so deeply entrenched in uh, our culture that they allow for the kind of community connectivity that will be necessary for the kinds of changes I'm suggesting. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Everybody meet in the church basement. Let's figure this out. I don't know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> I have thoughts on this, but you know, speaking extemporaneously, it's hard for me to lay them down. Perhaps I should write a book. That will take a while. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Elizabeth McCracken. Uh, it was so great to talk to her. She was a wonderful guest, and she's a terrific writer. Her new story collection is called Thunderstruck. It's out there now from the Dial Press. I hope you guys enjoy hearing from her uh, as much as I enjoyed hearing from her. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Elizabeth McCracken, and her story collection once more is called Thunderstruck. I am sitting in my office at the University of Texas, um, at my desk by my window with, um, I think what else is important to know? I'm looking at a church steeple 
I should know what church that is, but I don't know. Um, I feel like when you're in, uh, I feel like when you're in Texas, like at any point, you could always be looking <laughs> at a church steeple. It's probably true, although I think this is one of those campus. I don't think it's a Catholic church, okay. but it's one of those sort of cheerful, inclusive campus churches. All right. Yeah, like that's the thing. I guess most camp most campuses have a church, or at least in the South, yeah. that's the case. So you're down at the University of Texas, and you you hold the James Mishner Chair. What does that mean? I do. It's my my standard joke is, and boy are my arms tired. <laughs> right. um, it's a heavy chair. It's yeah, it's a very heavy chair. I'm waiting for somebody to tell me I can put it down already. <laughs> um, I teach here. There are weirdly. Um, two graduate writing programs at the University of Texas, and I teach in both of them. There's the Mitchell Center for Writers and the New Writers Project. And so I teach mostly graduate students, also undergraduates. I usually teach an undergraduate course a year. Um, Yeah, and that's it. And and strangely, I live in Texas, which I never thought I would. But it's all right, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Austin, that's pretty good. Yeah, no, it's great. And so, okay, and are you there for the the long haul? Like, are are you paraplegic? I think so. You are, okay. As far as I know. You're locked in. <laughs> they, they haven't let you know otherwise, right? I'm al- I am allowed to leave if I want to. Yes, you're not completely imprisoned, but it's a good spot. Exactly. I think a lot of people uh, with academic inclinations, you know, writers who are trying to kind of uh, do the, the dual writer-professor thing, like, that's an enviable spot to be in. I mean, you know? No, no, it's it's absolutely true. Um, and I've done, I've done hard time in places I wouldn't want to live in a long haul. Yes. That I appreciate Austin. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I just talked to somebody not too long ago, and, and uh, you know, I've spoken to many people who work in academia who write, which is uh, probably a, you know an obvious thought. But uh, you know, one of the big things that people need to realize, I think, especially people who are coming out of graduate school with the you know the idea of teaching and living that kind of life is that the first job is likely not going to be in an end, you know, in a place that you'd actually want to move to. <laughs> exactly. And you have to be willing to take that job. Yeah. So where did you wind up? Like, how did you, I mean, you, you, you have a pretty good resume. Like you went to Iowa, which I feel like is the Saturday night live of um, <laughs> li- literary America. You know, it's, it's the equivalent. Although, to be fair with a much larger cast, um, I, I am, hugely fond of Iowa. Um, I really feel like I learned a tremendous amount there. And I and I taught there as a visitor off and on. But one of the reasons why they have a great reputation, not the only reason, is that they have 100 students there at any given time. It's a huge program. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I mean, I thought the Iowa Writers Workshop was more selective than that. I always thought it was like 25 people per class, but Maybe I... Well, it's 25 people per class per genre. Oh, okay. So, you ha- so they let in 50 people every year in, in poetry and fiction. Gotcha. And so then... And not... even 25 is much bigger than than um, other writing programs. Do you think that's good? Do you want? Do you think more people's good? Or, I mean, is there a number that you think you should cap it at, especially now that you're in that chair and, and all <laughs> Sitting in my chair? Um, no, I think it's just a different experience. I think that there are great advantages and disadvantages to a big program. In a big program, you get more friends, you mix it up. There's never that sort of sense of a hierarchy. Well, I mean, there is a sense of a hierarchy, but um, just because all writing programs have them to, to some extent, but you don't have that that sense of, okay, I'm in this class with these people again. This is how I 
exist in relation to all of them. And that can be really nice, the fact that there are different people in your class from semester to semester. On the other hand, a bigger program means you get less individual attention. You, um, it's, it, they can, a big program can be harder to navigate. Yeah. Well, so and like when you were at Iowa, were you, uh, did you feel good about the experience while you were in it? I've talked to people who have like a, you know, it kind of runs the gamut. I've talked to writers who yeah. felt like it was oppressive. I've talked to, to uh, female writers who felt like it was uh, kind of a misogynistic situation. I've talked to other writers who loved it. You know, like, like where do you fall on the spectrum? Well, you know, I was really lucky for a bunch of different reasons. The, the biggest is that I had Alan Gerganis as my workshop leader my first semester. And he was just transformative and amazing and generous and brilliant and all of that. And I think that, that who you get your first semester makes a big difference. I also fell in with a, with a group of friends in a way that I'd never had as a younger person. Like I didn't run around with a pack of pals in, in high school. Um, and that was great. They're people I'm still friends with. Like who? And the less, any, um, any writers we would know? Uh, Bruce Holbert was one of my good friends who's just published his second book um, from Caterpoint. Um, uh, Karen Bender, Chris Offutt, Jim Hines. Sure. Um, and a bunch of people who I think are not particularly writing anymore. Um, my friend Max Phillips has written a bunch of books. Um, some of my friends aren't writing anymore, but we were all sort of like generous and kind to each other and celebrated birthdays together. And that, that made a huge difference. Yeah. And and my my mother is an Iowan, and my I had elderly relatives in Des Moines when I was a student. So I went to Des Moines like once a month, and so I wasn't the workshop wasn't you know the air I breathed. You got to, um, you got to ventilate a little bit and get out. Exactly. You can't feel you can't probably feel a little like a little bit like hermetically sealed if like that's the only thing you're doing because your Iowa City is is lovely, but I mean it's you're in Iowa City. There's not much else yeah. around, right? It's it's small, and for a lot of people, you end up in you know, in Iowa, and you think, why am I here? The only reason I'm here is for this workshop. And I had a real, you know, it wasn't my first time in the state. I had a real reason to be in Iowa. Other than that, my I saw my grandmother all the time, which was fantastic. Yeah, that's lovely. and also really really good for a young writer as well. Well, sure, yeah. So, uh, did you show up at Iowa? Uh, fairly fully formed, or was it something that you feel was instrumental in your development? Like, how good were you when you walked in the door? Not that good. Um, And I really am one of those people. I I do not believe an MFA is necessary for a writer. I mean, I'm I'm very grateful that this is still an unlicensed profession. And, but I I applied right out of grad, sorry, of undergraduate, which is something I, I don't necessarily recommend to my own students, although it worked out all right for me. I got almost no financial aid when I went in my first year, and, you know, probably shouldn't have. I thought they gave money to everybody. No? They're better now. They are. When I went, and it was a long time ago. It was the late 80s. They don't have James James Mishner bankrolling. I mean, come on. (laughs) They gave, gave, James Mishner gave him Gave Iowa quite a bit of money, oh, he did. but okay. not quite enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think when he was sort of feeling around, I mean, he was—he—I can't remember whether he was actually a Texan, but he ended up as a Texan. So, um, but yeah, no, not everybody. Some people got nothing. Some people got great aid. I got a tiny bit of aid, and and part of it was really that I had Alan Gerganis as a teacher, and he really said, "Listen, 
you just need to, I mean, to all of us, you just need to decide that you're a writer. Don't spend any time screwing around with like your identity as a writer. Just write. Um, and yeah. before that, I, my, that my, I just, I just like felt like, uh, what's the word? I just sort of had like a, like a hot flash hearing you say that because <laughs> I, I mess around with my identity as a writer all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, but this was like going, you know, am I a writer or am I not a writer? This is something I tell my graduate students all the time yeah. that it sounds like this really interesting question, but it's a binary question. There's no binary question. That's that interesting. What you do with the answer to it might be interesting, but spending a lot of time thinking yes or no. Yeah. Waste of time. Yeah. All right. Total waste of time. So you bet you, you, you went all in at that point. I went all in. And I'd also, when I was an undergraduate, I'd taken poetry, I'd taken playwriting. I applied to, I think maybe three schools and I applied in both poetry and in fiction. Um, and I didn't, I got in, I got in in fiction at Iowa, but not poetry. My memory is that I got in somewhere else in poetry, maybe in both, but got no aid and didn't get into the third place at all. Okay. And because I got a tiny bit of money from Iowa, that's, that's sort of what decided it. Plus it's like the, the Iowa's still the gold standard. I mean, yeah. and, and you knew that, right? I mean, and what, you must've been early twenties when this happened. Yeah, I was 21. God. So you came out of your undergraduate experience at the age of 21, writing good enough short fiction to get into Iowa. Yes. Yeah, but I also think it might be, it might have been, like, seriously, if I showed you, I remember the stories I applied with, and I guarantee you, I, gar I, I guarantee you they're better than mine at 21. <laughs> I guarantee it. Uh, but, I mean, that's still, you know, because, I mean, it is hard to get in there. And, but at the same time, I feel like I've heard, you know, echoes of what you just said from people who have gotten in is that I didn't feel like what I submitted was that good. It feels sort of random and arbitrary and... You know, I've been inside of academia a little bit, and I've seen what, uh, you know, an English department office looks like. I mean, I know there's a system of reading and evaluation, but it, it's kind of organized chaos, right? I mean, it can't be it's just the nature of the beast. that it's gonna There be. is such an element of randomness. I mean, it's really hard to to calculate. It, I, I mean, for for a couple of decades now, I've read either for graduate programs or for fellowship programs, and... I'm really aware that sometimes I read something when I'm in a good mood and sometimes in a bad, I'm in a bad mood. And it doesn't mean that when I'm in a bad mood, I'm more likely to reject stuff. I might be more likely to be, to be cheered by something that's got a little spark to it. But oh, that's it's, interesting. There's, there's a real, it, it depends on whether there was a manuscript that was about some of the same material right before yours. Cause when two similar manuscripts come up together I think, I mean, I, and I, again, I try to fight against this. I try, to, I try to realize my blind spots as a reader and fight against it. But you do sort of do a steel cage grudge match in your mind and go, okay, which one of these do I like better? Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the human which, nature, I think. Yeah. Well, and, and also, uh, you know, when it comes to applying to schools, uh, I, I, you know, I've always had this, this sense, and correct me if, if I'm wrong or if you've had a different experience of it, that letters of recommendation really matter because they're shorter to read. And if they're from somebody that the person reading it knows, or, you know, I feel like that has a, a lot to do oftentimes. Yay, nay. For me, no, yeah. they don't. You don't care. Um, I don't know. If, if somebody writes 
they can help if I'm on the fence about somebody who does not seem fully formed or, as often happens, has a terrifying undergraduate school transcript <laughs> um, or, you know, something in which I'm sort of like, okay. Or a criminal record. This per- a criminal record um, that if I feel like I have a question about whether this person is ready for, for graduate school, if I look at the letters and the people are really enthusiastic, then that will tip me over. Sure. A negative letter of recommendation has almost never tipped me over. One, you know, one direction or the other. Wait, you get you and, get, you get negative rec- uh, letters of recommendation. Oh my gosh, one of my favorite students, um, and she was she was applying from another country, and I sort of think I'm inclined to think it was just you know a cultural difference. Got one of the most stinking letters of recommendations I have ever read, and but it was clear that it said more about the guy who wrote it than the student he was recommending. And, and like those letters are usually anonymous, right? Like the, the student doesn't see. They ask the person. The stu- right? Yeah, sorry. Okay. Right. Okay, yeah. I just, I didn't write. Sometimes you see them, sometimes you don't. I mean, or, or I think like in theory, the application process as I remember it is that the person recommending has to submit those letters independent of the other stuff. Right. Okay. And you there are some people who really care about a famous person writing a letter of recommendation, and I don't. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't discount them, but I don't – just because your recommender happens to be famous, to me, is not a point in your favor. Okay. That's good to hear. I mean, I feel like uh, I might have had a different graduate school experience and graduate school uh, you know, department chair or whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Where did you go? Uh, USC. So, okay. Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, I won't name names, but I just the the person who ran the program back at that in those days was uh, heavily persuaded by any name, you know, uh, on a letter of recommendation, and I, I think that's kind of what fueled my suspicion that like I don't think people are even reading the actual fiction submissions; they're just reading the letters of recommendation because <laughs> you get inside of a workshop, and you know, I think that there's this is where it becomes sort of organized chaos, and and there's a lot of randomness, but. Uh, you know, I don't know if you had this experience at Iowa or if you've had this experience in other academic uh, environments, but sometimes you're sitting in workshop reading someone's stuff and you're like, how in the hell are you here? You know, like, <laughs> you can't even spell, you know, like there were people in my graduate program who truly, you know, grammar, like basic grammar and usage was lost on them. They didn't know what they were doing. And that seemed very odd to me and like a little bit disheartening because, you know, you, you know, you don't want to be dealing with, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. You want to be dealing with people who are really serious about it and have a, a certain level yeah. of competence. Now, it's certainly true. I can say as somebody who has read in a couple of different places, graduate applications, that sometimes somebody has spent an entire year polishing a single short story for the graduate school applications. And then they get into school and they never write anything nearly so good. And, I mean, I've, see, I've seen somebody who I've really thought, oh, wow, that story was so great. Why are these stories so so dull? And it's because they they can no longer devote an entire year to writing one story. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, as I was reading the other day that, like, George Saunders writes, like, two, maybe three stories a year. <laughs> uh, I know. And, and so, I mean, I, and I guess there's different levels of uh, prolificness, but that seems like the pace. If you really want to get something 
done. Uh, you know, uh, I guess the pace for it, that, that seems like a relatable pace for me anyway. I envy people who can just crank stuff out. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, the, it's the pace if they're all good. If you're somebody who has to write some crappy stuff as well as great stuff, then you should probably pick it up. But if you're George Saunders and the stories you end up with are George Saunders' stories, <laughs> right, right. it's the right pace. So what about you? How, how fast are you? Are you one of those people who, like, you know, you write crappy stuff or you hem and you haw and then all of a sudden it floods out of you? Or are you more of like a, a grinder, like an everyday up at dawn? I've never been an everyday uh, writer. And I do, you know, my first day of graduate school um, at Iowa, Frank Conroy, who was the director then, was always famous for you know, showing up and saying, real writers write every day. And I have never written every day. I mean, I can't, I couldn't even tell you what my longest streak of writing every day is. I mean, probably a couple of months, but right. probably no more than that. Uh, and I just, I write really badly if I write every single day. I also, you know, when people say you wake up and you get your cup of coffee and you go right to your desk and you don't talk to anybody. And if I did that, I can't even imagine what kind of total gibberish I would write. <laughs> I mean, so how do you do it? Well, you know, it, 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 it has varied over my writing life. I used to be, when I was, I'm, I'm married now and I have a job and I have two kids and so I have to be sort of more strict about where I find my time. When I was younger, I basically procrastinated all day long until it was nighttime, and then I wrote. And then I worked as a librarian for a while, which actually really suited me. I worked 9 to 5, and I would come home and have an early supper, and then I would stay up till 2 or 3 and write. Um, now, um, I'm not great, Um at being strict about my time, but I try to be. I definitely, I don't, I have colleagues who are incredibly generous about their time when the semester is over and they read stuff over vacations and over the summer. And, you know, my students all know that the last day of classes, the iron gate comes down over my office door and I just write. And I write in my, I work in my office on campus and, and I have to block the internet um, and during the semester, I, I sort of selectively block the internet and get work done. How do you do that? But it's you have, you in, it's in Do you have some sort of software? You use that, uh, what's it called? I forget what the thing's called. Uh, that basically like enforces internet blockage upon you. <laughs> <laughs> I use, during the semester, yeah. I use um, Freedom, which okay. you can set. Yes. During vacations, I set my... I. I change my um, my campus password without looking, so that I can literally not sign on to the internet when I'm in my office. Interesting. How do you and do that? How do you how do you change it without looking? You mean you just like push I a just, button? I I slap a lot of uh, I go to the change password and I slap a lot of characters without looking, and then I cut and paste, and then it's changed. Oh right. I've, I've, I've actually locked myself out of my computer once or twice doing this. Um, <laughs> Isn't but, it amazing the way? It's amazing the ways we have to contort ourselves just to try to, like, concentrate. That's, this is what's required for, like, just the basic concentration. It's terrible. And I, and I don't have a smartphone. Um, uh. and, and I don't have a smartphone be because I am so distractible. And, and a friend of mine was recently reminded me that, you know, in the days when we first got answering machines, I was the person who called her answering machine from every payphone on the street. 
So like this is the the idea that somebody might be calling me with wonderful news is something I've lived with for decades and and the internet's only made it much worse. But I I really I need to have I can't have access to email even to no form of communication other than my family being able to call me on my cell phone. And then I I mean I work I used to think you know I could only work a few hours at a time or um I couldn't will myself to work, but now if class isn't in session and I've turned off the internet, I can sit and work for nine hours easily. And I do very little other than that during those hours. Wow. Okay. And so when you're writing fiction and you're sitting in, you know, so it sounds like you're kind of a summer writer or in like winter break, like whenever you're on break, that's when you really lock in. But when- that's when I do a lot, when I do, when I compose for the most part. And sometimes I can write a short story during, I mean, like start writing and finish a short story during the semester. Uh-huh. But when you sit down to work for like a, if you're, if you're having one of your, your better days on a nine hour, uh, in a nine hour block of time, uh, like what does it look like for you? Like, are you somebody who starts with a title or do you start with an image or do you, you know, do you just let it rip and like write like a really messy first draft and then fix it? Or do you painstakingly do a line by line and the, the draft that you wind up with tends to be pretty close to the finished product? Um, I tell myself I'm not writing a really messy draft. I believe that I'm nailing it the first time. <laughs> and really, I, there's nothing, there's no part of me that thinks, oh, well, I can fix all this later. I, when I'm drafting something, I generally think, this is great. This is, boy, this is just falling the line. And then I reread it and I'm like, oh my God, this is, think this doesn't make sense. And so I do, I have, I have to revise a lot and I'm hugely inefficient. I write pages and pages that don't more with novels and with short stories, but I do know that I I have to write a lot of stuff that doesn't get into the the final version. But by God, when I'm composing it, I absolutely believe that it's going to get into the final version. And so, and so, how many drafts for like a typical book? Like you're doing like ten, fifteen, twenty? No. Yeah, I mean, I would. I would say so, you know, on computers, and I work both on computers and on a typewriter. Um, I've never, I don't ever draft a whole thing on a on a typewriter, but it's a little hard to measure. But I do, I do old-fashioned drafts when I'm writing a novel. I will type things over again, and so I would say I'd probably do that five times, and then intermediary drafts in between on the computer without printing out the whole thing and typing it over again. Okay, so I want to I want to shift a little bit. I want to talk about thunderstruck. I want to talk about uh, theme. I want to talk about grief, uh, and I want to talk about dark humor, like all of which seem relevant and all of which seem very intrinsic to you, uh, both personally and then professionally slash creatively. So, um, you know, I guess like a good place to start is to talk about an exact replica. Um, sure. Because I feel like the you know the material that you're dealing with there and the life experiences that you're dealing with there fuel the stories in Thunderstruck. In a you know you're kind of mining similar thematic yeah. terrain. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And so you know, with uh, an exact replica, uh, you're writing a memoir of two pregnancies, and uh, you know one child that you were pregnant with was stillborn, and then a year later you had a healthy child. 
So first of all, my condolences on your loss. Uh, I know I know a little bit about that. Um, My wife and I have had several miscarriages. I'm sorry. Recently, so but nothing. You know, it's it's sort of weird to parse because uh, you know our miscarriages happened earlier in pregnancy, and I've had this conversation like both with my wife and with friends where it's like, you know, it feels like a loss, and then it's like, yeah, it's I'm grieving like the loss of like something, you know, some sort of imagined child. Oh yeah, no, of course. But the further along it gets the worse it is. I mean, you know, it's like, so if the child had been further along, that just makes it heavier. And, or at least that's how I would imagine it. And then of course, once the child's like out of the womb and here, um, then the stakes just raise like with every passing second. <laughs> you know? I, I guess I'm laughing because at one point I, I can't remember even who I had a conversation with um, when Gus and Matilda, uh, my children were were babies, and we had a very intense conversation with somebody who who'd lost his wife about actually what the worst age to lose a child would be. And I remember that he reckoned four, oh. and then we were going, "Ah, oh, gosh, how do you calculate that?" I do, and I, I, but I do really firmly think it's this really strange human need to compare grief against grief. Yeah. And I really sort of don't believe in it anymore. I mean, I do, I, I do in the sense that, like, I do have a friend who, who lost her child at a year and a half, and I do understand that as a particular terrible grief. But I also feel like my ability to sympathize with her and, and to, to know how awful it is I don't have to call my own grief in, 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 to, to hold it up, even though, like, psychologically I did, I would go, yes, it's, it's, it's worse. But I, I, think, I think empathy requires us not to have to hold our own experiences against somebody else's. Yeah. I mean, if that I, makes sense. No, I get it. I get it. I, I, I need to be better at it. Like, I need to find kind of a peace or an equilibrium with it where I can just be like, yeah, this is, this is justifiable. Like the, the feelings yeah. of grief are justifiable and like, there's no need to sit there and parse it and like measure one against the other, as you say. Um, but it's, you know, it's a, to lose a child at any stage is kind of like the worst possible thing. I can't think of something harder and, mm-hmm. you know, to, to experience that level of loss, uh, and then to emerge and to try again, uh, this is something I wanted to ask you about because once you've lost uh, a child or you've lost a pregnancy, like subsequent pregnancies become a lot less pleasant. You know, like <laughs> I think back, I think back to the first because I do have one child. I think back to the first. You know, our daughter's pregnancy. There it was seamless. Like we just we got pregnant, the baby arrived, and uh, okay, and then the baby was born, and that was great. And uh, then we started having miscarriages, and with each subsequent one, it's like. You're just on pins and needles the whole time. It's not fun. And so after you had um, lost your son and then you, you decide to try again, I mean, like, uh, what was that like for you? I mean, did you, were you able to enjoy it? Enjoy? No. <laughs> um, I, in a weird sort of like, I was, I was 40 or I was about to turn 40. I was 39 when my first child was still born and, and teetering on the edge of 40. So I didn't have any, t- I didn't have the chance to wonder about it and go, okay, am I ready for this? I'm like, all I could hear was, you know, a giant tick, tick, tick. Right. And also 
as it happens, as you may know, it's easier to get pregnant right after you've just been pregnant. Yes. Your, your fertility is higher then. So the, the decision to try to get pregnant again, and my God, especially considering the fact that I was, you know, relatively geriatric to be getting pregnant was, was, was felt made up for me. I didn't have to spend any time wondering whether I was ready or yeah, not. You, do, you don't have a choice. I mean, if you want to have a child and you got to do it, you got to, you got to. Yeah. Act. Yeah. Um, and there was, you know, anything else would have been sort of like, I don't know, just sort of romanticizing. Maybe that's the wrong word, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have a, ch- you know, I, I knew that, if I waited and I didn't get pregnant, I would always wonder. Yeah. Yeah. So, you you know, your, your, your second child is in utero. You're going through the pregnancy. How, do you, how did you handle the, you know, kind of the obvious emotions that must have come up and the worry? You know, because like, obviously worry is not good for anybody's health. Right. <laughs> you know, but how do you, I, I, that's the problem like, I, I go through is like I'm just a nervous wreck and I wind up on the Internet and... Uh, for anybody listening, I mean, anybody out there who's ever like Googled an illness uh, kind of knows the, the sort of wormhole that you can get into when you're doing that sort of thing. But um, if you if you've had troubles with pregnancies or, you know, anything along those lines, uh, the, 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 the boards, I call them the mommy boards. Um, that is a particularly engrossing and uh, anxiety inducing experience that I need to wean myself off of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they're they're. They're terrible. <laughs> yeah. All the acronyms, all the acronyms. I don't know if you remember that, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of acronyms out there on those boards, but like, you know, that I'm sort of become uh, fluent in uh, much to my dismay. <laughs> and I'll be, I'll be like talking to my wife and I'll be like, or, you know, there's like TTC is trying to conceive. Oh, right. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. I, you know, I won't even get into it, but how did you navigate? Like, how were you able, were you able to find some kind of emotional equilibrium? How did you live with the you know, kind of the natural worry. I think, I mean, I was lucky in that I found a great obstetrician who neither indulged me nor um, treated my worry as though it weren't important. You know, she was incredibly sympathetic. And if I ever had a single worry, she lived a block away. I mean, not lived. I would like to say I did not actually know where my obstetrician lived. She worked a block away from where we lived. Um, and I said, okay, so here are my worries. And she was amazing at dealing with them. We, it, it's, and it's, it's sort of funny for me to remember this because we didn't find out the gender of the baby. And that felt very important to me. And I, I, at, at this remove... I couldn't tell you whether that was because I didn't want to start writing a story about the person in my head right. or whether because I wanted to sort of cede control and not go, all right, you know, there are a lot of things one doesn't know. Let's just not know everything. Um, and it might have been both, but it also, you know, I might have just went, nope, not, I'm not, whatever happens, happens. That's and and I, mean, I don't want it anymore. Yeah, I mean it's like self-protective, but it's also rational in light of events. I mean, because I think what, like once you know, it's impossible not. And I, this is where it gets back to kind of like the the imaginary person or the you start to project the moment you find out you're pregnant. You're like, okay, so what? It's impossible right. not to have those dreams, you know. And and so uh, once you know the gender, maybe it personalizes it more, or concretizes it more, and maybe makes it uh, 
you know, a more anxious experience, maybe not knowing makes it less real or something. Yeah. And, and also in that, in that, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that sense of like, there's a weird sense when you've gone through a loss that you don't want to feel like a chump for feeling optimistic. Right. Right. And I felt like I really, that there was part of me going, God, I was such a, and on top of the grief and everything else, that when I remembered my own optimism, I went, God, you were just, you were a chump, man. You <laughs> just really thought you had it all figured out and everything was going to be great and look at you now. And that I didn't want to put myself in that position again. Mm-hmm. And I really, I felt like I wasn't, I don't think I was in a state of terror the nine months of my second pregnancy. I think I was fine every day. But I think I, generally speaking, did tried really hard. And another completely weird um, thing that I ended up being slightly lucky for me, which is a strange thing to say, and I apologize to anybody who's gone through this, is I, I developed gestational diabetes with my second pregnancy. I can't even remember whether I put that into the book or not, but it meant that I was taking my, and I hadn't with the first pregnancy and didn't with the third pregnancy, but I was taking my blood sugar and I was just great at, you know, not everybody can manage uh, gestational diabetes with diet. I did. I was obsessed with the numbers. I was so good. And I think weirdly, so I had this really small, this, this project yeah. that, had to, that, that broke down into hours. So like every day was broken into hours and what I could manage with my diet and taking my blood sugar. And, you know, every now and then it would go up and I'd go, okay, I can't have oatmeal for breakfast anymore. That's okay. I can manage that. And so I had this really weird hourly project for the last six months of my pregnancy Actually, I haven't thought about this until now. And in a weird way, I think that even though there was some anxiety because it's actually a health thing, I had something I could do. Yeah, no, it gives you some place to like focus your energy and it makes it, yeah. it makes you feel like you have some control. You know, like, yeah. I can control this. <laughs> I can make the, if I do this right, then things will go better than if I don't. I get that. And uh, it's a, it, it was something that it was something to obsess over that the obsession actually had an effect on. Yeah. Yeah. An immeasurable one, immeasurable in blood sugar levels. Right. God, now I'm like envying your diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's talk about the grief, like the thing, like the actual experience of grief, because um, it's not always what you expect or it, it can it can surprise. And I think that, you know, it's very human to... Uh, anticipate grief, to fear loss, you know, and to, you know, we all, we all think about losing loved ones. We all fear it. We all dread mm-hmm. it. Um, and then something like this happens where, you know, your child is stillborn or you lose a parent or you lose a, you know, whatever it is. And then you're in it. And, uh, like, like how did you, I mean, did it surprise you to has the experience? Because it's not something that you really get over, you know, it's always with you in some sense, but has the experience surprised you? Have you surprised yourself in terms of how you've behaved? Um, you know, I heaven knows that when it happened, I just went into a few months of feeling nothing but rotten. And 
I, I, you know, I, I think uh, it's partially the way my my mother raised me to instantly look for weird, bright sides of terrible situations. But I was lucky in that I could do that. I I, I wasn't working. Um, Edward, my husband, and I left France where we'd been and where the baby was delivered, and went to England for a summer, and then ended up back in in the U.S. And I got a chance totally indulge myself and the big thing which seems a, a, a strange gift is that I no longer was around the people or the strangers or the acquaintances who had seen me when I was pregnant and that was a weird help too because yeah. I didn't I wasn't I wasn't going around explaining things right. to people right um, and I won't say I mean I certainly, I still, I still think about that kid. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't feel like, you know, that it gets better, but it certainly got easier for me. Again, I was also lucky. I've had two children since who are now almost six and seven. Um, but I think I was surprised that I was, I was so, I was pretty undone by it for a long time. I mean, how could you not be? But then at the same time, um, strong enough to, to try again, which not everyone would be. And then also there's a lot of strength, I think, in uh, being able to like uh, alchemize that terrible experience into art, you know, which I, and I, I don't want to sound too treacly or I know it's overdone to talk about like the therapeutic aspects of memoir writing, but you know, it, it's very, it's a very natural impulse to go through something heavy and kind of, uh, life-changing like that. And then if you're a writer to want to write about it, but it's another thing entirely to actually execute. It's hard. Um, and, mm. and so that's, a, that's an aspect of it that I wanted to ask you about is, um, you know, cause I think everybody listening who has a, a writerly impulse has some sort of difficulty in their life that they're trying to feed into their work one way or another. Um, and I think a lot of times there's the, the problem of perspective and distance, you know, because, uh, sometimes we're too close to the thing in order to see it clearly or in order to be able to figure out a way to put it into a book. Uh, like what, what was that process like for you? How did you finally arrive at like, I'm going to write about this. And, and then how, how did you get to the point where you could? Well, I, I, I knew that I wanted to write about it at some point. And I knew I could not write about it when I was pregnant for the second time. And part of that was just that, superstition and not, you know, being able to put one foot in front of another and that I wouldn't be able to do it when I was pregnant. Um, I also knew that I wanted to write about it close enough to the experiences that are in the book that I really remembered what it felt like. And that was partially because I, when I was, when I, when I was so destroyed for those few months, one of the things was, that was difficult was people thinking, I guess one of the difficulties was me thinking that nobody knew what it felt like. So what I was really interested in was not processing the experience, but getting down what the experience felt like. Right. And, what, and when I first wrote the draft of the book, I thought I was writing notes for something else. I didn't tell anybody, including my husband, that I was writing it. 
I wrote it in an incredibly short period of, of time. I mean, I really am a pretty slow writer, and I wrote the uh, a first draft of that book, which is the one thing I've ever written that actually is pretty close to the last draft of the book. Mm. I added a couple of things, but not much, and I wrote it in three weeks. I certainly have never had uh, a writing experience like that before, and I am quite certain I never will again. Mm. And, it, and, and one of the things that was really <laughs> useful is that because I hadn't told anybody about it, it was a really private experience. And I think one of the things that can be difficult when you're writing a memoir is trying to hold the idea that you're writing about a, a personal experience in your head and that you want to get the privacy and the intimacy while still thinking people are going to read it and judge you. And somehow I tricked myself into not caring about somebody reading it. And I wasn't, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, do, I don't want to, you know, clearly when I was writing it, I wanted to make really pretty sentences, you know, it's, it's shaped, but I thought, I thought it was going to be material that I would probably put into a novel later on. Hmm. And then what was the decision? Like, what was it? When did you decide like, oh, this is a memoir. I'm going to just let it lay, you know, let it play as it is. Um, when I finished it, the first thing I did was to show it to Edward. Um, and he read it and um, said, basically, I mean, you, you know, he, he, he admired it, but also I think we both felt sort of like, We'd been in a terrible accident together, and I went, here's the accident report. And he read it and was like, yep, that's what happened. <laughs> you felt it all. That is an accurate assessment of what happened. Right. Um, and I knew all along that I showed it to him not because I wanted his, his take on, um, you know, whether or not he thought it was any good. But, you know, like if I did something with this. Would that be okay with you? And if he had said no, I wouldn't have done anything with it. Right. Um, and then I showed it to my agent, um, Henry Dunow, and said to him, because I, I wanted, I mean, besides the fact that I, I trust him and he's a wonderful reader, I didn't want to give it to a friend and say, here's this possible book um, about the most painful thing that ever happened to me. Will you tell me whether I should work on it more? Um, and I knew that Henry could actually, that, you know, he's, he's, you know, gentle and brilliant. And he could have said, wow, that must have really hurt. I mean, he wouldn't have put it that way. But it, <laughs> right. if he didn't think it was a book, I knew that he, that he, would, he would be able to say, yeah, it was really important that you wrote that. Now it's time for you to put it away. But he, but he thought there was something in it. And then I sent it to, to another, my friend Paul Lasecki, who read it and said that, that he thought it was a book. Um, but one of the things that I knew was, that if it was far away from being finished, I didn't want to work on it anymore. Right. Yeah. It was either, it was either close to being what it should be then or, and if it wasn't, that would have been fine. It actually would have been absolutely fine with me. You needed an easy, I mean, not to, not to be too on the nose with the, uh, the metaphor or whatever, but you needed it to be an easy delivery. <laughs> you don't want to like, no, exactly. you, when you're, when you're dealing with like something so emotionally sensitive, like, you know, cause some books do come easier, you know, easier than yeah. others. And I've talked to many writers who have had that same kind of experience where a book comes out really hot and fast in like, a, and it's very, it's usually very emotional subject matter. 
Um, but it's not an it's not an experience that replicates. It's usually a right. one off. It's like a it's like a Halley's comet kind of writing experience. Um, and so you know, in the aftermath of all of this, you know, you talked about being kind of um, laid low for several months. Was there something that happened that you, you know, you, or a moment you could point to where you, you sort of started to come out of that deep grief, or was it just kind of a gradual, you know, re-entry or you know, an emergence from it? Um, well, you know, in some ways, I sort of feel like my second pregnancy was being in a state of suspended animation, and you know, the the timing of events. I swear to God, like, if you put them to a novel, somebody would go, no, the, sorry, that's too convenient. And that, you know, we'd been, we'd been in England, until I took a job at Skidmore in Saratoga Springs, and the day we moved into the house, I took a pregnancy test and I was pregnant. I mean, that day, the first day of the, the time that we were in a city. So things were sort of, like, weirdly marked off on the calendar and in terms of life, of, you know, big life moves. Um, so certainly... That was different than the months that had gone before, um, but it did feel rather like suspended animation. And I and one of the reasons I started working on the book, which I did um, when Gus was three weeks old, is that I felt like if I did feel like if I wrote about it then, then it wouldn't haunt me through his early weeks. Right. That like I had a place to put that sort of sense of, oh, this is what I had planned to be doing a year ago. Um, I mean, sort of almost exactly. This is, you know, a year ago, I thought I would have a baby this age. And that by writing it, I understood, and I think that it's true, that everything became actually much easier, that I sort of felt everything in three weeks, and not even necessarily felt it, but I really thought about it. And so I wasn't surprised by anything. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's when, it, when, you, when people talk about catharsis in writing and they talk about the therapeutic aspects of writing, it is that. It's like seeing it clearly, like thinking about it deeply, reckoning with it. Um, you know, th- there is something th- therapeutic about that. It allows you to process it and, like you say, not be haunted by it. Um, not that it doesn't stay with you in some form, but, um, you know, it's as close as maybe it's as close as you can get to trying to resolve it. You know, it seems healthy anyway to me. Yeah, I think so. And I also think that there were all sorts of things that there are things that you feel like you don't want to think about, but it turns out the shadows of those things are much more terrifying than the things themselves. Like just sort of the threatening, oh gosh, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about that day. But if you actually write through it, you can just go, oh, wow, yeah, that was a really terrible day. But it is no longer sort of threatening and shadowy. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me, you know. Um, what about spiritual stuff? You know, so you go through something like this and you're bound to think about that kind of thing. Did it change you in that way? Did you have any kind of spiritual, you know, approach or identity before that? And was it altered or did you have nothing? And then suddenly you had something? Nope. And nope. Um, (laughs) yes, I'm such, I'm a better person now. Um, I, I think and I can't remember whether I put this into the book or not, that what did happen to me is that as a relatively elderly person to get pregnant even the first time, I was I was 38 when I got pregnant, um, 
I believed in statistics. And I would go, well, I know that, you know, things are more likely to go wrong as an older woman, but I can look at the statistics and I can be calmed by them. And the one thing that has changed for me, and I do feel like that it must be as close to a lack of faith that somebody who doesn't believe in God can have, I'm no longer comforted by statistics. I no longer think, you know, chances are the worst thing won't happen because I think, well, you know, I fell into the bad side of the statistics one time. It could so easily happen again. Right. Um, I don't feel like, I mean, there are things, I'm not saying that I was unchanged, you know, emotionally, but spiritually, no. And I, you know, I come from, I come from agnostics and, and, um, and doubters anyhow. Well, I think I've always thought agnosticism seems like the sanest approach, like atheism, like people who are like dogmatic atheists and who are like constantly arguing against the existence of some sort of uh, other entity or overseeing thing or connective tissue, you know, for lack of a better way. Right. <laughs> yeah, like I've always found like that. It seems to me like the, the other side of the coin of people who are dogmatic, um, you know, religious people. Like, I just think like, I don't know. You know, like, yeah. I think kind of a shrug and an I don't know is a more honest response and maybe like a more balanced or something. But, um, well, and, and also, I mean, I'm, you know, one of my, my big, my, the biggest pieces, one of the biggest pieces of my philosophy is that you're allowed to think or be anything you want to other people. You know, I'm a real you know, your rights end where my nose begins kind of person. So when people get really head up that people, other people believe in God, I just don't understand why you would care if somebody else believes in God, as long as you weren't using your belief in God to poke your fingers into, 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 into my business. Right. Or yeah, I mean, sometimes it can be toxic, but yeah, I'm kind of with you on that one. And, um, you know, I guess like the, the next thing I would ask is with regard to, um, you know, the subject of grief, the theme as it would pertain to your writing. Um, you obviously wrote the memoir and you dealt with it head on in nonfiction, but now you've written this uh, collection of stories, Thunderstruck, which continues your kind of exploration of this theme among others. And I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, it, it makes sense to me that you wouldn't be done with it. <laughs> you know, it's not like you're going to, it seems like the kind of thing you can deal with in multiple books. Um, but I'm interested to know if dealing with it in fiction versus dealing with it in a memoir yielded different, a different experience or different insights or, you know, was there a difference? Yeah, yes, probably. And, uh, and I should say, I have a note up in my office reminding me, you know, that the next book needs to be a little cheerier to the extent like <laughs> right. I, I didn't, it really wasn't, I think maybe I realized this when I read the stories all together for the first time. And it was like, wow, those are dark. <laughs> People die or are injured everywhere. Um, but certainly when I read a few reviews talking about it, I was like, it wasn't, it wasn't purposeful. I didn't think, oh, I'm going to write a story that examines grief in the modern world. I was like, boy, I'm just, life's a bummer. Here's another short story. Um, and, and some of the story there were, Two stories that were entirely written. Is that right? No, three stories. 
maybe even four, that were entirely written before I wrote the memoir. And it's certainly like it's something I wrote about before I actually went through it. And I had a friend say to me after my first child died, something like she was being very sweet. And she said, it's like that thing that you wrote about. And I like burst and she like quoted something I had written once. And I went, I made that up. I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> right. Again, I was a chump. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was already, already something I, I was certainly interested in. Um, I, there are stories in there. There's one short story in particular that I remember writing and thinking, yeah, this is, this is the fictional version of my memoir. Maybe there are two stories like that, actually. Mm -hmm. And one of them I wrote before I wrote, um, exact replica and one I wrote afterwards. There's a story called property that I wrote actually is the only piece of fiction I think I wrote when I was pregnant with Gus. Hmm. So before I wrote the memoir and then there's a story called something amazing that I wrote when I mean, now I can't remember. I kind of think actually I wrote that before Gus was born as well. And then you, um, and then you wrote exact replica in three weeks when he was three weeks old. I did. So you were like, I mean, that's because people who don't have kids like that period, like right after the baby arrives, <laughs> You're not sleeping. You're nursing. I mean, especially the mom, you're nursing and feeding and doing all that stuff. You're sleeping at most like three hours at a chunk. And you wrote a book? Do you know, <laughs> I <laughs> – because I'm, you know, every now and then I get a, a student who says, well, what do you – you know, should I – I'm thinking about whether I should have a baby. And I'm always like, first of all, if you're married to the right person and you want a baby, don't try to time the baby. That's that's um, will only lead to grief because babies have a you know have a habit of of not obeying your timing anyhow. Um, and also, I'm a big fan, even with you know with young writers, of it's important to start your life. Don't you know? You should begin your life because that is what will feed your writing anyhow. But also, newborns, I find they're much easier to write with. It's I to me, if you said. I wrote a book in three weeks when I had a one-and-a-half-year-old. I'd be like, you are a superhero, and that is impossible. Yeah. They, That's, they, you know, no, per, no person can do that. They do sleep a lot, the newborns. But they do, you know, but then that's the thing. You could. You can pick your three-hour window while they're mm -hmm. napping, and then, yeah. you know, you get in there and you do your work. And, and you're sort of like, I, I don't know if there's any truth to this, but I was talking to a friend of mine who's got a newborn right now, and he's, or, you know, he's he's come out of the weeds. Like, those first six months are kind of the, the hairiest mm -hmm. part sleep-wise, but... He's like, I had so much adrenaline the whole time or something. Yeah. There is some sort of biological thing, right? Like after the baby arrives, both mother and father, you, you kind of go on autopilot. You have this weird energy. I, you know, I, I absolutely believe that you have weird energy. I feel like being low on sleep is a kind of, if you choose to think of it this way, I know it's not for everybody, but it's sort of a, a kind of delightful drug. You think differently than you do when you're well-rested. Yeah. I, I absolutely believe that... The book I wrote is shaped the way it is because I was low on sleep and because it was written in, you know, in a sort of piecemeal way. It was piecework. Um, you know, you know, the chapters aren't very long. I think I probably like wrote a chapter in a nap and then I would go back and, and reread it. So I, I think it's, it definitely has the way I wrote it 
is probably really visible in the final product. But I also think that when you've got a little baby and you can, you know, the baby fusses and, and you feed it or you bounce it in a little bouncy chair and they're asleep and you're just sort of spending a lot of time looking at this person that you love. Right. It's much easier than with, with a one and a half year old who is, you know, running for the electrical sockets and, <laughs> and understandably wanting attention and love and food and, and uh, attention, you know, it's, it's, that yeah. seems much harder to me. Well, yeah, and it occurs to me now, too, like from an emotional standpoint and, you know, talking about perspective and being able to write about that experience in a clear way that, you know, you know for all the, the talk of fatigue and all that comes with having a newborn, there also must have been such elation. You must have been so elated yeah. having gone through what you went through to then have this baby must have been such a great moment. And then, you know, it makes sense to me, I guess, emotionally that that would be when uh, you would be able to write that book. Yeah. And also, I mean, I, that's, that's completely true. And also I was never going to be somebody anyhow, who was going to be, you know, going on giant hikes with my newborn. I was going to be sitting in the house and going, I'm not getting any germs anywhere near you. I'm just going to look at you to make sure you're breathing a lot. Yes. I mean, which I know all parents of newborns do. I still do. do. I still do it. My daughter's four. I still will get up in the middle of the night and go into her room. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, but, you know, listen, Gus is seven, Matilda's six, and we are nearly six, and we spend a lot of time going, huh. She okay? Yeah, right. <laughs> when they're asleep yes. and fine, you yes. know. Oh man! So uh, empathy and I want to close with empathy and dark humor. Just like the two things that I think, uh, you know, obviously come to mind um, as nece- as like human necessities, but as something that maybe um, are especially necessary when it comes to um, loss, you know, and just d- the difficulties of life in whatever form they may take. And I, I want to start with empathy because this is something that occurs to me uh, a lot or has occurred to me a lot in my adult life, maybe you know, over the past few years more than ever. But uh, it, it seems like it's harder than it should be for people to imagine the struggles of others, even if they don't share those particular struggles. And Obviously, this is something that books do well, you know, and I think an exact replica was, is kind of seeking to um, foster empathy in people who might not know what it's like to go through something like that. But doesn't it seems to me like we should be able to imagine a little bit better, you know, like somebody. Yeah. Who, and, and I think about like somebody who, you know, you'll hear about like a celebrity who gets like, you know, who's diagnosed with like some illness and then suddenly they're like a champion of it. And that's great. You know, that's a great natural reflexive thing to do, and I'm happy that it happens. But there's a part of me that's like, why couldn't you champion it before? You know? right. <laughs> it? it has to be about you. Like, you have to actually be suffering from it before that suffering matters. And, you know, I know we all have a limited amount of time resources and energy resources, so you can't be everything to everybody. But I don't know. Like, I, I just, I, I guess in my own self, you know, to kind of turn it back on myself is that, I, gosh, I really hope I'm, I'm a good empath. I hope I have a good ability to imagine the suffering of others without necessarily having to read a thousand pages on it. You know, like, do you understand what I'm getting at? Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I do. I mean, I, I feel like that is 
It's one of the goals of art, right? It is. Wait, one of the goals of what? You know, from 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 of art is oh. to help people look at something that's outside of their bodies and feel something about it. Um, and certainly that's one of the reasons that I read. Um, the work that I really love tends to to be stuff that is trying to draw out empathy. And stuff that has a little bit of dark humor, which I find, like, I find so imperative uh, as a quality and as like a, as a shield, <laughs> as self-defense. That, like, oh my God. I, yeah. I, you know, I talk to my wife about this all the time. Like, she'll be like, you know, cause, cause I'll sort of like, I, I get dark with my kid, you know, in terms of like the humor and I mean, not, obviously it's all within bounds of, uh, I hope like age and aptitude and whatnot. Like I'm not, I'm not totally merciless, but I, I think it's actually important to try to teach your children dark humor. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's like, I, I can't imagine. And, and there, but there are people I find who, who can't tolerate it. You know, they don't want dark, dark humor is just too dark or, you know, they need to have this kind of like reflexively sunny approach, which uh, makes me very anxious. Like those people who are just, you know, ultra cheery and that's kind of their, their way of processing. But, um, you know, See, those people believe in God. <laughs> so they have a different kind of consolation. <laughs> and to me, one of the consolations in life are, are dark jokes. Yes. That's it. That's, that is the thing. And I have to say that when, you know, at the darkest times of my life, Really soon afterwards, somebody has cracked a joke that's made me laugh and has made me think even briefly, okay, yeah, no, I can, I can continue to live. Like, this is not going to kill me. Yeah. Um, it just seems necessary. I think you're – I hadn't thought of that, right, that before. I think you're totally right. It's important to teach your kids to be able to find that. Yes. Again, almost like a to me, almost like a faith. Look, at some point, you can go through a terrible time. If you believe in God, you tell your children. And at those times, God is looking after you. You know, that's when there's only one one set of footsteps in the sand, right? <laughs> and for those of us who believe in bad jokes, you say something terrible is going to happen. Somebody's going to die or be maimed, and then somebody is going to make a joke. <laughs> And you need to be able to find it funny. Yeah, or you need to be really the, important. And you need to be the one telling it, even better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I always admire that in people um, generally, and you know, I especially love it in um, my artists and in my authors. So I certainly, you know, it's been a thrill talking to you. I appreciate uh, your candor talking about difficult stuff, and then and also, oh, it's been great. I've had such a good time, and uh, and also you know being able to to make such wonderful work out of it. So kudos to you. Um, thanks once again, and best of luck with whatever comes next. Thank you so much, Brad. It's been it's been fantastic. All right, guys, there you go. That's Elizabeth McCracken. What a great guest. What a great writer. Go get her new story collection. It's called Thunderstruck and Other Stories out there now from dial press and uh, you can find elizabeth mccracken online check out her website elizabeth and follow her on twitter where her handle is at eliz mccracken thanks to kill rock stars as always for all the great music be sure to check out kill and uh, of course the uh, opening segue music 
uh, the music that led into the interview that was uh, Thunderstruck by ACDC. I realized that's very uh, on-the-nose humor, but I couldn't resist. Don't forget about the app. This podcast has its own official app. It's free. It's the Other People app. It's free at the uh, App Store for your iPhone or at the Android Marketplace for your uh, Android, the uh, the Amazon Marketplace for your Android uh, device. You know what I'm saying. Whatever device you got, you go get the Other People app. The Other People app is free. And then when you have the app on your device, here's what's going to happen. The most recent 50 episodes of this podcast will be there waiting for you. Free. And then if you want to sign up uh, for premium, you can stream everything, all 320-something episodes right there. You sign up for premium right there within the app. You get access to the full archives. Support the show. My God. What a a bargain. It's very cheap. I mean, it's like a couple bucks a month to do it or uh, even less if there are other pricing uh, plans to meet your financial needs. So please go get the app. The app itself is free. And uh, you can email me if you want to email me. The address over here is at letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you're thinking. You know, as for like uh, Christianity, Jesus Christ, I mean, it's a big argument in this country. It's a, it's a lot to think about. It's on everybody's mind to a degree because it's there. It's part of the uh, fabric, like it or not. So you wrestle with it. I, you know, whether you're a believer, whether you're not, it could just be genetic. Sometimes I think that. Like you're just wired one way or the other. Nothing's going to change it. Though I guess people do uh, jump the line, you know, like going both ways. Though lately, uh, more people have been jumping in the direction of not believing. I think that's what the statistics show. But I'm just, you know, recalling something distantly through the internet fog. But see, that's a you know that's part of I think this uh, recurring argument that like echoes like f- you know into my life now from my childhood, where it's like you know my parents the the Catholic adults in my life, uh, you know I know what it's like to do what they do. I spent years of my life going to church every Sunday because I was forced to. I spent uh, time going to like Catholic, uh, what was it, some sort of confirmation like camp. I got confirmed. I took first communion. I went to a confessional booth. I did all this stuff for years. But, uh, you know, in this uh, dialogue slash debate slash argument that I've been having in my own family for my entire life, uh, these people have never spent any time being, uh, you know, a a lost agnostic (laughs) or whatever I am, atheist. I don't know. Use whatever word you want. I've spent time in your church for years. I've done your uh, practice. Why don't you walk with me in darkness? Let's meet halfway. Please remember that Isaac Newton died of complications from a kidney stone and that Einstein died of an abdominal aneurysm and that one of his doctors said it was the result of tertiary syphilis. That's it for now. Thanks again to Elizabeth McCracken. Go get her uh, story collection. Get all of her books. Buy a bundle. Why not do that? Buy in bulk. Thanks to you guys for listening. I'll be back again soon. And uh, we'll talk again.
and, uh, or I'll talk, you'll listen, but you know what I'm saying? It is kind of a dialogue. I'll have a conversation with an author. You understand how this uh, show works. (laughs) 